Hello, I'm Yanis Varoufakis. I'm at Novara Media, and I have a message for you. The best way of uh, underpinning any kind of potential resistance to a very toxic establishment without being populist anti-establishment and by supporting good, rational, humanist causes is to support left-wing media like Novara Media. Novara Media and all such media need your support because they certainly do not have the support of the establishment. Cap diem. Delegates of 29 countries from across Asia and Africa gathered in Bandung, Indonesia for the world's first Afro-Asian conference. As the once great ruins of empire sank like Ozymandias into the Sahara, currently and formerly colonized nations got together to plan how to rise up. Military, political and economic cooperation, non-alignment with either side of the Cold War, a coalition that recognized the obvious differences between its member states, but that they had one thing in common. All were under the boot of racial capitalism. All were part of the Third World. Yet this Bandung spirit, as it came to be known, a project of collective national liberation enabled by networks of mutual support, was quickly and brutally extinguished. In the years between 1961 and 1973, no fewer than six African independence leaders, including Mehdi Ben Barker of Morocco, Amilcar Cabral of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, and Patrice Lumumba of Congo, were assassinated by their former colonial rulers. All were socialists. All were replaced, either through military coups or strong-armed transitions, by leaders happy to make deals with the devil. People like Jomo Kenyatta in Kenya use the language of African socialism to woo the masses, all while aligning themselves with Western superpowers in return for inward investment and diplomatic power. Former colonies subjugated by law became neo-colonies bound by structural adjustment programs. Half a century later, this mass betrayal of African people has been all but forgotten. Kevin Okoth wants to change that. Okoth grew up in Germany and Kenya, so knows a thing or two about imperialism and its afterlives. His new book, Red Africa, excavates some of this history of revolutionary black politics. Not just so that we can look back fondly on it, but so that we can revive it for our time. In a compact 120-page essay, Okoth argues against Afro-pessimism, a position that's become almost the default in mainstream anti-racist politics, and which he describes as an anti-politics of despair, for its presentation of blackness as something fixed rather than relational, and of anti-blackness as inevitable rather than historically contingent. Okoth's persuasive, historical materialist analysis exposes the way in which racial essentialism has taken hold of our movements, but how it wasn't always like this. There was a time when racialized and oppressed people everywhere understood their struggles as more similar than different, and understood imperialism, not some vague notion of racial hatred, as the common enemy. 
I'm Rivka Brown, Commissioning Editor and Reporter for Navarra Media, and today I was joined by Kevin Akoth for an incredibly wide-ranging episode of Navarra FM, one that spanned from Guinea-Bissau to Gaza, the banding spirit to Beyonce. His book is an argument for forging new connections across space and time, and I can guarantee you we did exactly that. Kevin Akoth, welcome to Navarra FM. Thank you, Rivka, for having me. Uh, I wanted to start by talking about Beyonce, uh, which might seem like a bit of a, a detour, but I'm trying to maybe illustrate a, a point. Um, I think a lot of the book's argument um, and, and the reason why you're making this argument for a reclaiming revolutionary black politics is because of the kind of uh, predominance and hegemony of a particular kind of position um, that is informed by sort of Afro-pessimism or its more contemporary incarnation, which you call AP 2.0. And for me, someone like Beyonce really embodies that. Um, you know, this sort of Afro-pessimism um, popularize the idea and maybe you can kind of refine my description of it but um, of blackness not as a as a position in relation to um other racialized people but as a, an essential um part of one's identity so as as, as an ontological thing rather than a, a kind of a political um thing or as a sort of social positioning um and and for me beyonce really um exemplifies this i think a good example is uh, a song from her most recent album alien superstar where she actually samples the founder of the national black theater in harlem barbara antier some people will recognize this quote we dress a certain way we walk a certain way we talk a certain way we paint a certain way we make love a certain way we do all of these things in a unique specific way that is personally ours um, and, you know, it sounds a bit there like um, Barbara Antier is referencing this idea of a quintessential sort of black difference or mm-hmm. essence. Um, and, and you know, Beyonce has really bought into this idea, I feel, and, and has kind of popularized it. And so at the same time as, as also being a, a major sort of... Um, beneficiary of and proponent of capitalism. So um, a couple of years ago, famously, she and her husband, Jay-Z, starred in um, this ad campaign for Tiffany's in which she wore um, the the company's famous yellow diamond, um, which was... um, sold in 1877 from South Africa's Kimberley mine to Mm. the American founder of Tiffany & Co, Charles Lewis Tiffany. Now I'm giving these two examples by way of sort of illustrating the sort of position that Beyonce has and the idea of blackness that she's embodying whilst at the same time occupying um, this deeply imperialist, um, like materiality. Um, And so I was kind of wondering whether this resonates with you at all, whether you could talk to us a little bit about what Afro-pessimism was and has now become and um, whether it's true what I'm saying that like this book is um, a sort of response to that or a rejection of that. So I think um, just to kind of um, start with your example is I think they both emerge kind of out of a similar moment or the extreme kind of articulation of those particular politics with kind of an essential blackness that's tied to kind of a capitalistic enterprise. Um, but I kind of distinguish a little bit, I think, from the first time I wrote the essay to now, I've kind of almost refined the way I kind of understand Afro-pessimism as a particular political and philosophical articulation. Mm. Um, because I think they kind of both emerge out of this kind of, you know, um, Afro-pessimism comes about around like 2006, 2007, um, kind of as the Obama presidency is starting. And it's kind of, it is a reaction or it kind of exists in conversation with this moment of kind of uh, black achievement is a black person who has achieved the highest 
uh, office in the United States kind of, you know, brings back a politics of kind of like racial uplift and, oh, we can all do it together. Mm. Um, and then I think there's, it kind of splits where Afro-pessimism, I think why I got so interested in it, I, I was thinking about that afterwards, is because it's almost like a negative response to this moment. Mm. Whereas kind of the Beyonce um, kind of Jay-Z thing is almost a positive kind of response to that moment saying, oh, this is great. We should continue to do exactly what happened here. So of for Afro pessimism, Beyonce yeah. sang at the inauguration, right? So um, for then, you know, for Afro pessimism, I think it was kind of okay, yeah, but nothing's really changed for Black people in the United States. Like mm -hmm. nothing, nothing's really improved. So mm -hmm. they kind of it drives them towards this like deeply, deeply pessimistic politics. Whereas you know, for someone like Beyonce, they're like, oh, we've all benefited from this particular moment, and we will continue to benefit from this particular moment. So this is the politics we're going to push, and that kind of leads them to a certain essentialism. Um, they're both kind of essentialist politics, kind of asking, basically saying that there's something inherent about being black. There's these like cultural traits and uh, kind of, I don't know, yeah, there's all these kind of essential qualities that all black people share and therefore we're combined in this project and therefore we should support their entrepreneurial project or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, they, you know, we all know this, uh, you know, we all know uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z do very little for black communities, really, if, yeah. if, we're, if, we're, if we're being very, very honest. Mm. Um, I think particularly also with the, with the Jay-Z example, and it's uh, the various business ventures are always relatively dubious. Mm. Um, I mean, uh, not to make it too pop cultural, but, yeah. you know, he's, he's messed black people out of their contracts. Uh, yeah. and it, but basically, it's kind of, I distinguish kind of between Afro-pessimism as a negative response to that moment, saying that actually nothing's changed in the Obama years, but therefore, um, our response is despair. Mm -hmm. um, and the other kind of articulation, which is things are great for us. Um, we should continue to do this sure. because I feel like that's kind of, um, you know, the way that kind of black celebrity figures garner support because they do benefit. And there's a particular class of black people who did benefit from, from these moments. And then also when we go into later on the Black Lives Matter and being able to kind of profit off that, there is a particular kind of uh, class of people who do benefit from this, from this moment. And then there's others for whom, you know, Black Lives Matter rises up and unfortunately cannot institutionalize the kind of this radical moment of change. And for, you know, um, other people, things remain the same. Mm -hmm. So it's very much for them, I think, for that kind of popular kind of pop cultural black figures who were kind of purporting this essentialist mm -hmm. politics. Mm -hmm. For them, it's a good way to kind of, you know, because they have benefited and they will continue to benefit yeah. from, from this. Yeah, I, I think it's just they are slightly different articulations of an essentialist politics, but they are both kind of function to detach the idea of blackness from the material foundations of how race is produced. And I think, you know, another example would be, I think it's De Beers, Lupita Nyong'o doing uh, advertise, advertisements for De Beers and, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, which I'm, you know, I look at that. A diamond I, company, right? Indeed, yeah. And I look at that and I'm a bit uneasy about it. Yeah. I think, but also this, you know, Afro-pessimism, um, in the form that you describe it may only be a 21st century phenomenon mm -hmm. but this is also has like a much longer history which maybe will lead us back to Red Africa mm -hmm. which is maybe a period in time say uh, between the 50s and 70s yeah. um, roughly um, a time when people were disillusioned with the promise of um, post-colonial like liberation and retreated therefore into things like the nation of Islam and pork chop nationalism mm -hmm. and, 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 and kind of cultural difference and th the kinds of currents that had actually been present in um, black political consciousness 
since, you know, the very early 20th century with things like negritude, which we'll come mm-hmm. on to later. But can you kind of maybe tell us a bit about how Afro-pessimism actually has a bit more of a genealogy than just 2006, 2007 and the kind of disappointments that it arose out of. So for me, one of the disappointments that I think um, kind of is, that's why I kind of see Afro-pessimism as part of a kind of much larger tradition and body of thought, because it does emerge out of kind of, you know, and there's many different articulations of that, some radical, some like Afro-pessimism, I find reactionary. Um, Disappointments of the civil rights era. Mm. I think there's a big kind of response to that being said, like, look, the civil rights happened. Um, There were legal changes, but these legal and institutional changes didn't actually lead to the uh, changes in life chances that we hoped for, mm-hmm. um, a real decrease in kind of mass incarceration of black people, uh, police violence against black people in the United States. Um, so I think it's kind of a whole body of thought that tries to make sense of this. Um, and I think Afro-pessimism's um, just unique response to that is this kind of thing of, it's always been this way. Like we've always been the worst off in the entire world. There's nothing we can do about it. Since slavery, this has kind of been the way we've been treated as black people. But the ontological kind of aspect of it does have a much, much longer history. Uh, I think even if we're talking about, you know, um, I mean, we might be sp- speak about negative quickly now too, mm-hmm. um, yeah, because sure. just kind of it relates to your first question. You know, if, if we think about kind of um, ideas of blackness that were kind of positive affirmations of, uh, you know, black beauty and the value of black cultural forms. And, you know, we see these things in negative already, which is, um, not the United States, but it is a kind of similarly trying to affirm the value of black life in a, in a white supremacist society and an imperialist state, yeah. France in that case. Mm-hmm. You know, even with the negative, we, we see the value of kind of that argument, but then you also see the pitfalls mm-hmm. of it, um, which kind of enable a very particular um, kind of politics. Mm-hmm. But the way I theorize also um, Afro-pessimism is part of kind of a broader trend in black studies too, is I think what I try to do in the book is also speak about it in relation to the decline of third worldism as a kind of global political project. Mm. Because, you know, in the early stages of, you know, you have the Bandon Conference of 1955, um, then you have, you know, the All African People's Conference, I think that's 58. Um, and then you have the, the, the creation of the non-aligned movement in, in Belgrade, Serbia in, in 61. And you have and the Tricontinental Conference later in Cuba. So you have these like markers mm-hmm. that also kind of the black imaginary in the United States kind of positions itself as part of this project. It's a project that is kind of a global project of the oppressed, essentially. Right. And it kind of does try to build these connections between, oh, what is the situation of, you know, let's say in this case, um, you know, black people in the United States and an oppressed uh, colo- and a colonial uh, and a state that's colonized yeah. or like a country that's colonized. So what are the parallels? How can we forge these struggles together? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have, um, I think that's what I, you know, when you have uh, the Bandung Conference, for example, you have, you know, the most prominent, one of the most prominent black writers of the time, Richard Wright, um, writing a report on the conference or, you know, in the old African People's Conference, you have plenty of kind of black diaspora intellectuals kind of moving through that space and trying to figure out where their shared project comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the reasons for the decline of the, uh, of the third world as project are, I mean, it comes with the advent of kind of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the huge debt crises, mm-hmm. um, unable to fund it, finance government programs. I mean, huge, um, I mean, it's also just huge repression 
um, not only by, by, you know, it relates to the rise of American hegemony. Mm -hmm. um, so not just military repression, but mm -hmm. also a lot of intelligence intervention in a lot of these states. Mm -hmm. um, so over time, kind of this project gets deeply undermined. Yeah. And then, you know, I think the way I think of it, then comes kind of this moment, um, you know, the end of history moment in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, where everyone feels like they've sorted it. Socialism's kind of been defeated. Um, now we live in a capitalist world. Let's go from here. Mm -hmm. And then I think a lot of these kind of discourses arise out of the failure of a perceived failure of the third world as project and kind of the decline of socialism as a viable alternative or yeah. communism as a viable alternative yeah. to a capitalist world system. So just to rewind a little bit there. So we, we've, we've just skipped over and I want to go into a bit more this moment of, of um, third worldist possibility, mm -hmm. the kind of banding spirit that you describe the Afro-Asian conference in 1955 and the subsequent conferences across the next 10 or so years. Mm -hmm. Like what was the third worldist project, which um, I suppose Red Africa was a, a, a component of, but not necessarily, the whole point I suppose is that revolutionary African leaders were were not necessarily the stars of the show. They were just they were also they were just participants in in a in a, in a bigger alliance. Right. But so so tell us about what third worldism is or what it was and um, what these kind of conferences were setting out to to sort of do. You know, at a time when colonies and empires were falling apart. Right. So it's kind of it's 1955. I think um, with Bandung you have African participation at Bandung, but not that much because kind of the wave of decolonization follows afterwards. So it's kind of, you know, a lot of African states aren't actually independent yet. They can send representatives there, but not actually government representatives. Yeah. But yeah, that takes place in 1955. It's the first Afro-Asian conference um, of its kind, um, where kind of, I guess the, the aim is for, you know, countries that are colonized or former co colonized countries um, to assert themselves on the international stage and say, we have a shared project and we want to develop this shared project without the interference of the West, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, hadn't been possible before then. Mm -hmm. What was their relationship to, to, to Marxism and to socialism? I know that like part of the, the, their assertion was that like, we're not Mao style communism. We're not Soviet style communism. We're our own thing. Yeah. I guess that that's, that always was the problem with the kind of specifically the Bandung moment is that it kind of is um, ideologically extremely ambiguous. Um, I mean, I would characterize some of it broadly if we had to like lump it together in one category, a radical nationalist movement. But I mean, within that, there's currents that are socialist, mm. but then there's also kind of quite conservative nationalist currents within that. Um, and then, you know, there's these ambiguities in this project that, you know, from the beginning kind of, they never really go away. Mm. Um, it's never really, the Bandung project is, you know, this kind of articulation of the third worldist project is never distinctly socialist project uh, mm -hmm. as a whole. I, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't characterize it as mm -hmm. coherently a socialist project. Um, of course, there's kind of, you know, different connections between nation states and, the, you know, the Soviet Union and, you know, Mao's China. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that because, yeah, in terms of those relationships and relationships that, you know, particular countries in the global south chose them to align themselves with yeah. particular um, blocks in, in, in the Cold War. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's, and you know, there are these ambiguities too. And I think even in the book, I mean, I try not to be too, uh, kind of a, a gloss over some of the difficulties because these, these are the difficulties. It's, you know, the differences between radical nationalists and, you know, conservative nationalists and socialists. Yeah. And also I think, you know, there's 
ambiguities too in terms of you know while the conference was happening indonesia was engaging in its own kind of occupational project and framing that as part of the anti-imperialist third world project so you know there, there is kind of uh right. which but is an ongoing west, west Papua, Papua, yeah. yeah which is an ongoing kind of um occupation essentially right, um, right. so it's kind of the ambiguities of that particular yeah. moment too yeah um, so there were ideological kind of like fractures within the movement which may- maybe also like precipitated its downfall because mm-hmm. it was very easy to exploit and oh certainly because it's kind of you know um i think it's also you know in the context of the cold war later um kind of playing different factions against each other is mm. a very simple kind mm. of de- d- divisive kind of mm. game that way you can kind of mm. but yeah mm. um but i, I think um Particularly with that third world moment too, um, I think what I was also interested in, it's like, yeah, through the All African People's Conference, it kind of comes to, to basically it comes to uh, Africa as well with a newly independent Ghana right. and kind of with more African participation at that point. Sure, but I sure. think in the broader kind of sense of, I guess how it relates to maybe some of the things we were talking about earlier, Afro-pessimism and how those kind of got severed, it's because... Um, so I talk a little bit about this in the book is the the kind of trajectory of how the decline of third worldism affected the university mm, and affected yeah. uh, affected we'll university that. struggles and uh-huh. I think that was kind of for me reading those two parallel to each other and saying oh because you know I was wondering where kind of the distrust of the process of national liberation came from within contemporary decolonial studies and black studies and I was kind of thinking, oh, where does this come from? How can I historicize this? What can I read this next to? Mm. And for me, it's just simply kind of to be read next to the decline of kind of the third world as project mm-hmm. and kind of a distancing of oneself from it because, you know, as a, you know, many scholars and maybe some activists would think of it as no longer relevant, outdated. It's been yeah. superseded by other developments. So now we need to make a different way. Were there any kind of like um, concrete projects like pursued um as a result of these conferences or were they mostly just sort of big networking events because it's a relatively short book and you're you're sort of abbreviating a huge amount of history yeah. it might just be that but these conferences were purportedly there to also organize military political economic yeah. cooperation between states like did that happen or were they just like, um, talking about stuff yeah i, I mean in, in some ways it did happen and, and, and um but i mean with bandung it's kind of the policy conclusions remained like relatively vague in mm. terms of like what the actual institutional kind of uh, consequences of this would be. So it kind of, I feel like it almost, to me, the way I read it exists more as like a, a moment that um, kind of writes the third world into the global imaginary mm-hmm. rather than a particular program of yeah. actual economic military cooperation. Right, um, right. I think there is, you know, it is trying, the attempt is to form a block at one point, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of the non-aligned movement becomes a, a block that is supposed to be a political block that holds power and that can kind of articulate uh, something as as like a block and can exercise mm. power. Just briefly explain what the non-aligned movement is for the benefit of... Okay, so the non-aligned movement is kind of established in uh, Belgrade, um, in what is, now, what is now Serbia, but then uh, Yugoslavia. So it's uh, led by Sukarno, who was, uh, was the president of um, Indonesia at the time, who had hosted the uh, Bandung Conference, uh, Tito, um, Kwame Nkrumah from Ghana, uh, Nehru from India, and Nasser from Egypt. Um, and the point there was kind of a response. This one was more directly, more so than the Bandung Conference, aimed at the two superpowers Imperial in the Cold powers, War. Yeah. It was, you know, it was the Soviet Union on the one side, the United States on the other. And kind of a, uh, nations in the global south basically saying that 
we refuse to be subordinated to either of these. We're not just like pawns in this power struggle. We actually have our own kind of political ideology that can't be reduced to either of these. We, we're doing something quite different. But perhaps we'll get into yeah. kind of the pitfalls of that yeah. particular articulation. But yeah, I, I do also try to think about a little bit about like, there's the moment kind of with the Tricontinental Conference where things try to be move a little bit more in a socialist direction because it's hosted by Cuba and Cuba's kind of taking the leading, uh, taking charge in that, you know, in Cuba. Uh, when we, After the Tricontinental and, you know, later down the line, we have, for example, Cuba supplying direct military aid to the Angolan liberation struggle against mm -hmm. Portuguese colonialism. So that becomes like very, for them, it becomes very tangible mm. um, and actually tangibly also um, tied to a struggle for socialism. Um, but that's not always the case. So oftentimes also these, some of these kind of cooperative agreements remain yeah. quite vague and don't really, uh, weren't really able to take on institutional forms. To move us reluctantly onto the onto the death of this, the slow death of this uh, ideology, um, can you tell us a bit about how that happened? I think one really instructive example that you give in the book, which sort of shows how it sort of happened gradually rather than suddenly in many cases, is Kenya, where you've got this leader, Jomo Kenyatta, who's handpicked by the US and the UK um, to, to lead the country after independence, and who who kind of is a bit of a Trojan horse. He sort of uses the language of African socialism to ultimately sell a very neo-colonial sort of pro-imperialist position. Yeah. You also um, throw in the fact that the person who co-authored this sort of seminal paper that he publishes, um, a guy called Tom Mboya, he turned out to have very close connections with the CIA. Like, So that's just a really good example of how like these people were seeded into post-colonial um, sort of newly independent African nations, um, giving the appearance of... Um, promoting socialism while selling out the people um, to, in order to sort of um, be part of a, 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 as you say, neoliberal project of, yeah. of, of world building there. The, the Kenyan example is just quite in instructive to me because it kind of, you know, the language of African socialism, which was popular then at the time for loads of projects that didn't really want to be socialist projects, really. So it's kind of almost just saying we're part of this same thing. But yeah, for Kenyatta, I think it's, you know, Kenyatta also an ideological shapeshifter, really, of, um, you know, had had contact with the Soviet Union before and then later kind of chose his side. I think the difficulty of, or like the Kenyan example is, yeah, is just very instructive for that kind of way of the way um, kind of, at least what I would call Red Africa was undermined, a kind of socialist, communist leaning idea of national liberation. Because yeah, as you say, you have um, you have kind of someone who's been essentially chosen as a safe preferred leader. You know, um, it was kind of there were some complications in Kenya too. Like Tom Boyer basically was very close to the Americans, Kenyatta a little bit closer to the British. Um, kind of so slight conflicts within that too, <laughs> but but very firmly on the side of a capitalist Western bloc. Yeah. Um, you know, in Kenya has remained a bastion for that kind of uh, for those policies and. Uh, pretty much since that period has yeah. had no period of none kind of really Western oriented rule there. Um, still kind of a pioneer, still, at, I think maybe a year ago, another IMF loan. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, we, we do adjustment structural program. adjustment programs and, you know, despite knowing we all too well what kind of happens with it. But, mm. and, you know, Kenya also, you know, is a really interesting example too, because it's the hub of international organizations. For It's a hub of international organizations, NGOs, the UN headquarters for Africa. It's like, 
mm. a very completely kind of like west-facing uh, kind of nation. Mm. But then, you know, when you read the history closely, you see, oh, the, you know, Kenyatta's, for example, repression with the help of the British and the Americans of kind of a leftist kind of anti-colonial tradition, which could have taken the country in a different direction right. and which did have support too um, yeah. amongst the amongst the public. Yeah. I mean, this was also forcible, right? It wasn't just, you know, I know that um, perhaps actually it's not in Kenya, but there were leftist leaders um, across the continent that were assassinated. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. That, were, uh, that were, you know, and obviously we know um, elsewhere that the CIA has backed coups of socialists yeah. such as Salvador Allende. And this is not simply, um, there's, the, there's both the carrot and the stick. Yeah. And I think maybe to, just to bring it back kind of to some of the stuff we were originally talking about, I think some of the assassinations really helped to kind of you know, I think the way kind of a politics, the African socialism kind of became also um, tied to ideas of traditional African life or, you know, a, a romanticized notion of what kind of being black and African meant kind of was, under, was underpinning that project. And it was a project that was also kind of at least tolerated by the West as something that's not too dangerous mm. because that particular, articula or that particular way of conceptualizing blackness actually kind of constrains um, co cross-racial solidarities, for example, um, which could have led to certain communist organizing. You know, if, in Kenya specifically, we look at um, the assass assassination of someone um, like um, uh, Pio, Ga Pio Gamapinto, who was a Goan Kenyan mm -hmm. member of parliament, um, a socialist born in South Asia, but um, became a part of the Kenyan Liberation War. I think it's rumored that he was one of the only non-black um, Kenyans to take the Mau Mau oath, so the London Freedom Army, so the people who fought for independence. And, you know, you have the assassination of people like that. Um, and then on the other side, you have the promotion of people who kind of have a vague West-oriented politics, but talk all the talk about kind of African unity, blackness, yeah. you know, who kind of t say all the right things right. Uh, about that. But there's something interesting about how that their message, is, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, is both inspiring, but has this flip side of also accepting that um, African states will always be subjected to Western power, whether that's forcibly through, um, you know, the the transatlantic slave trade mm. or um, voluntarily, quote unquote, through the IMF, through yeah. through being client states, through being exporters of raw materials and stuff. So, you know, there, is there not in this message of national liberation, the emphasis being on national or Africanness, also this kind of acceptance of African like subjection? Um, I guess it's kind of difficult to say because the, the I mean, I guess because loads of these come out of the Bandung moment, which is trying to break out of kind of, it is trying to at some point break out of kind of the Western sphere of influence and trying to break with that. Um, the way some of these projects end up being is, of course, a different way because, um, but no, I don't, I, I don't think that's necessarily, so I, I think it kind of has a lot to do with the things we were talking about earlier where you kind of, you know, you have Nkrumah too, like in Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, um, kind of had like this version of African socialism that was also for a while tied to an idea of kind of, oh yeah, Africanness, you know, this is what it means. And, but then after the coup in 1966, a US-backed military coup, he kind of changes around and he's like, actually, what I really wanted to implement was a socialist politics too. And I think as soon as that kind of gets lost, as soon as that kind of becomes erased from, you know, it becomes kind of emptied of its content through African socialism, I think that's kind of one of the arguments that I wanted to make mm, is that mm -hmm. um, the word socialism then becomes emptied of its content 
and reappears as this kind of just empty signifier, mm. uh, which which kind of doesn't really point to any policies, programs. Uh, yeah, we were talking about this in relation to the Labour Party, which is yeah. still a nominally socialist party. I, I believe it says the word uh, socialist on people's membership cards. And yeah. yeah, you know, that term has basically become an empty signifier for just not the Tories, I guess. And a similar point can be made about the language of, of anti-imperialism too, um, stemming from that period. Because, you know, someone like Jomo Kenyatta, who was um, pro-Western, could kind of present himself as an anti-imperialist leader. Yeah. And it just through, basically, just through uh, rhetorical kind of gestures, a nod to kind of, oh, yeah, we're going, we're, we've got our own cultural values and yeah. we're doing this and, and we're separating ourselves from the West. But really, with the policies that kind of get put in place, yeah. have very little to do with kind of a, a, what maybe one would call a delinking. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Tell us a bit about delinking. Actually, that's a, that was one of my other questions. So you've you've, you've brought it up yourself. <laughs> delinking so, from modernity. Yeah. Just for from... just for context, I think it comes up in the book um, in relation to decolonial studies, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is kind of a popular way of, which is kind of coined a lot of the a lot of the language we we kind of use to describe processes of decolonization, whether it being decolonizing museums or institutions or, I don't know, beauty standards or whatever, whatever that may be. So a lot of it kind of comes from there. Um, there, in that case, the idea is delinking almost from this coloniality, modernity matrix, which is kind of, it's an attempt to delink from Western structures of knowledge. So it's, mm-hmm. it's an epistemological kind of claim. But then, you know, what I kind of always try to bring back into the conversation is the critical political economic argument, which is a different one, which is kind of the idea of trying to delink from the global capitalist economy as like coordinated blocks. So it kind of comes from a lot of it is Samir Amin, which is kind of, I feel like a third worldist critical political economist was trying to think through what is possible after the decline of the third worldist project. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it reaches its severe limitations in terms of um, what type of cooperation is actually possible at the moment and what kind of ways we see regional blocks integrated into the global capitalist economy is not necessarily from a position of delinking. It's in fact from a opposite position. Yeah, yeah. I want to just briefly ask about the about academia because you you do mm-hmm. talk about it a lot in the book and I don't know I I presume you've had some contact with academia and actually it sounds like from actually the way that you start the book with the Roads Must Fall movement which came out of Cape Town in um, 2015 yeah. and since spread to America and the UK particularly Oxford University um you know that there has that the work of decolonization which maybe once meant something quite radical has has since been i suppose retreated into elite spaces and this kind of theoretical discourse which you you sort of expressed a bit of frustration with just then when you're like people are talking about epistemological delinking but like we also just need to like not take imf loans yeah um do you think that like there's there's a way in which academia's kind of absorption of the discourse of decolonization 
and and uh, the retreat of racial elites that might once have actually led radical movements into what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls oppositional studies departments yeah. around the world has contributed to the to the sort of slow march of neoliberalism because we're talking now rather than having important discussions about you know solidarity between third world nations we're having much more um, like narrow discussions about decolonizing curricula and beauty standards and yeah. things like this. And I think it's not to say that those things are completely irrelevant or something like that. But, you know, I don't see how one can look at the kind of political situation today and think that that's the only thing that's required. Um, you know, but I think that is a product of, of kind of particularly the neoliberal university because that's where rewards come from, right? Rewards come from, uh, you know, specific, pinpointing specific things that specific sites of struggle that no one has looked at or, and, you know, and kind of isolating them and kind of, you know, which um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls as well, um, romantic particularism. But yeah, I think with the, with the decolonization thing, I think it's, you know, um, remembering that decolonization is, um, is not just an unfinished project epistemologically, it's an unfinished project um, in terms of politically, right? When we're talking about the Palestinian struggle now, um, there's national liberation struggles, you know, Western Sahara. This is an ongoing kind of conversation. It's not a thing of the past. It's not a thing of the future. It's very much happening right now. Palestine. Yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think um, by kind of retreating too much into this kind of theoretical idea of what decolonization means and whether this is, I think it kind of forgets oftentimes, it starts to forget about the actual messy process of decolonization, which is, you know, struggle for decolonization. Um, and I think we should not forget that that is very much central to our idea of what has decolonizing means and yeah. what it has meant throughout history. Yeah. I mean, we, we'll talk about Palestine in a little bit and why praxis is like a thing that has been lost um, in, in, in the midst of all of this because of the retreat into theory and the, re and, and the kind of retreat into reforming institutions. I mean, Olufemi um, Otaiwo talks mm. about this in his book, Elite Capture, how, you know, we're, we're, we're obsessed with discussing um, uh, who's in the room, who, you know, uh, and, but the room in question is usually the press conference, the, the academic seminar, like yeah. th these and are I the think, rooms. And I think sometimes it's, you know, I think, um, and this is not like a big gripe with the, the, with the university, but it's just like the way the stru those structures work is oftentimes where the universities that have the most resources um, in the Imperial Center, oftentimes in the United States. So where decolonizing, where a lot of conversations or theories about decolonizing are being coined are within elite institutions in the Imperial Center, mm. um, which are then exported elsewhere, right? So I think there's very much a difficulty with that mm. because it, their priorities aren't really national liberation. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that might not be, you know, the institution's priority sure. is not the national liberation of Palestine. Like, mm. you know, you know, so there, there kind of is this kind of conflict mm. with where kind of, you know, even within the kind of those frameworks where the knowledge is being produced and how it's being disseminated and mm -hmm. um, what kind of, politics it encourages. Yeah. I just briefly want to have uh, uh, a shout out to the to the places, shout out to all the countries that did sort of buck the trend a little bit in terms of mm. the submission to, to, to the inevitable end of history, as you say. And like those places um, were often um, Portuguese colonies, Cape Verde, Mozambique, um, Guinea-Bissau, um, and, and 
partly that seems to be because of the uh, the fact that the people living in those colonies often were not racially singular and that there was like a kind of inbuilt like coalition of Portuguese people, black people, Jewish people, Castilian people, like enslaved Africans um, like moved through these places. I mean, not to say that they didn't in other colonies, but I'm just interested in why why these places managed to hold out. Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit about how they how they did um, and why yeah. they did? So I think there's, there's multiple reasons for why I kind of choose them as um, kind of the most promising kind of forms of uh, of anti-colonial and politics and national liberation that uh, on the African continent for me. Um, I mean, one of the reasons is Portuguese, Portuguese colonialism just lasted longer than most other colonial uh, entities in, in, in on the African continent. Right. Decolonization happens in 75. By that point, Ghana's already been independent for 18 years or something. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the lateness of it because um, Portugal was a relatively um, economically weak uh, imperial power, so with, a, with an empire, but kind of with very much relied on this empire, not just um, as a source of kind of raw materials and profits, but also, for example, um, at the time, Portugal was sending its impoverished uh, working class to, the, to, to its colonies mm-hmm. um, because they just became immigration outlets because right. the Portuguese state couldn't support them at home. Okay. And, you know, so it kind of became strange kind of, um, there's different class dynamics that emerge out of that because the colonizer isn't, you know, plucked from an elite class. Uh, yes. uh, right? like it's, and so there's uh, maybe slightly more like potential for solidarity to form. Yeah, between... and I think um, more solidarity to form, but also kind of um, divisions emerge out of that because it's kind of, oftentimes it's also just kind of, you know, black, Af- or what is categorized as black African workers competing with uh, white Portuguese workers for the same, for the same work, mm. which then also has its difficulties, right? Because then, uh, you know, in the Portuguese colonies, it, a particular kind of racism has to emerge in very specific forms to structure these hierarchies. Yeah. So there has to be like very minute kind of differences between people that are legally encoded. Mm. So I think there's specific forms of racism too that kind of radicalize um, uh, this this movement. And I think I I and then I mean a lot of it just has to do with 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 the with the liberation war they had to fight too. Yeah. Um. I mean the Portuguese exactly because why I'm saying it's you know. The idea was based on lusotropicalism, which is the idea that Portugal was preordained to lead the world towards a multiracial, harmonious empire. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was kind of the cover for we need these col- like we need these colonies to sustain ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so very reluctant to let go, almost fighting until you know the Carnation the Revolution in Portu- Portugal itself, but almost trying to hold on to the bitter end. Which means that the liberation struggles there really had to fight. Mm. Um, you know, and it's. You know, in places like Kenya, we were talking about Kenya earlier, um, the fighters never were included in, in the gov- government or anything, in the post-colonial government, right? Like some people fought, like people fought, the Mama, the Land and Freedom Army, but it never, but then it was sidelined immediately after independence. Yeah. Um, but then um, for them, for the kind of struggles in the Portuguese colonies, um, they were the, na- you know, the fighters became the National Liberation Project. Right, um, right. But yeah. And what kind of problems did that create? Because, you know, you've got like um, Amilcar Cabral, who's from, um, well, he's Cape Verdean and um, Basau Ghanaian. Um, 
and he uh, he has this idea of the nation class, you know, and like, and but he famously sort of says like, you know, we're not fighting just so that we can have our own flag and our own national anthem, guys. Like, we're not here to unseat the the, the pharaohs so that we can become the pharaohs, which was very much the the enterprise of some of the um, the other um, sort of African leaders, some of which we've we've talked about already. But like, how can you? maintain this idea of a sort of good nationalism he saw he talks about that's it the nation class um and yeah. and a kind of i don't know the idea that the, he doesn't say the nation state um and maybe that's an important distinction but like i'm trying to wrap my head around how you can have a progressive idea of the nation whether that's possible and the kinds of nationalism maybe it was a transitional nationalism maybe mm. it was just like a a sort yeah. of compromise that they'd come to just like Talk to me about progressive nationalism. I guess the state there and nationalism is seen as almost like a bit of a means to an end. Um, you kind of, in the African context, I feel like um, national liberation can't be understood without reference to pan-Africanism, for example, which becomes this bigger project about a federal kind of African entity that is not necessarily a nation state. You know, it's, there's, there's all these attempts to kind of transcend the categories of the nation state. I mean, in the in the case of um, kind of the liberation struggles in Mozambique, for example, um, the nationalist project meant trying to, um, you know, so basically they fought um, the Portuguese and kind of liberated spaces as yeah. they kind of fought off the, the Portuguese. Um, and in these liberated spaces, which were kind of the site of anti-colonial struggle, um, there were kind of at attempts to build the nation because oftentimes people came from different linguistic communities religious communities too in, in Mozambique, you know, we have um, kind of um, Islamic kind of North and a kind of more Christian South, for example. So it's this attempt to kind of, there is not this idea of the nation doesn't even exist or like doesn't really exist before the national liberation struggle. So it's almost something you create hmm. from scratch to try and build kind of, because, you know, Is it a strategic essentialism? I don't know. Yeah, in, in some like ways, but because it's, um, because it's trying to, um, push back against the world of nation states where it's, yeah. you know, anti-colonial struggles are trying to um, make their case at the UN, right? Yeah, and what does only it take states to be... get a seat at the UN. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's these kind, of, these kind of questions where it's, you know, and that's where a lot of, you know, at the UN, and in it's in the, uh, you know, that's where actually a lot of um, anti-colonial and national liberation movements were able to make, make their claims to an international kind of audience. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, the nation state was required to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think it's really a narrow idea of the nation state either, because if we look at Cabral, for example, um, it's the liberation of uh, Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau together, part of the same national liberation project. Two places, different social structures, different uh, kind of ethnic composition. They're like fundamentally quite different entities, except yeah. that they're going to be liberated from Portuguese colonialism together. Yeah. Um, so there is this kind of expansive notion of like what this struggle means and who it brings together and who belongs to this mm -hmm. kind of nation. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But perhaps also, maybe we can talk about that uh, a little bit too. I think I found, um, that's why I mentioned um, André Blouin at the end of the book, because it was kind of a, a, she was a feminist anti-colonial activist um, who worked across multiple libera national liberation struggles and never really saw herself as part of one nation. Right. But did kind of consider it part of this long project of national liberation, but yeah, was engaged so in a struggle in Guinea, in the Central African Republic, in uh, what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. Okay. 
So it was kind of an expedient like um, vehicle. The nation became a vehicle for for liberating as many people as possible. Right. We're going right. to give and and like not because she was necessarily deeply invested in the idea of the nation um, and the importance of the nation or the 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 sort of uh, she didn't revere the nation as like some holy entity, but maybe just saw it as yeah a means to an end. Um, yeah. But yeah, that would be really interesting to hear a bit more about her. Like, yeah. where was she from? Um, because it's kind of yeah, uh, just about the means to an end thing. Because yeah. that's kind of where we find the collaborative projects too. There was a planned, for example, project um between uh, Lumumba, who was assassinated in 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 the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Nkrumah in Ghana, who was then deposed mm-hmm. in a coup. Mm-hmm. Um, for kind of another for kind of a Congolese Ghanaian entity already. Aha. Uh-huh, okay. Um, so you know these plans, but both of them um um Lumumba assassinated by the Belgians and. Um, with assistance from various intelligence services. And yeah, Nkrumah deposed in an American back coup. But yeah, um, about André Blouin. Um, so born in the Central African Republic and kind of has this quite tough childhood, or like a very, 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 very tough childhood. Um, is born to a white father and a black mother. Um, but at that point, kind of mixed race marriages are outlawed. So she can't be taken in by the father, so sent to an orphanage. A lot of what we know about her, we have from an autobiography that always need to put the disclaimer in. It's very contentious um, because she, I think, if I'm not mistaken, she sued to not get it published, for example, because I think was dissatisfied with the way it told her story. Right. But it's kind of the story of of her radicalization and move towards kind of the uh, national liberation struggle. So, you know, at, at first her resistance is kind of quite in like quite small kind of resistances to kind of the, the oppressive conditions at the orphanage or, you know, often talks about her, her mother's rebellions against patriarchal society. But then she kind of increasingly gets radicalized as um, she moves. She then marries, um, she then marries a white man too. Um, I think he's a French uh, mining engineer or a French engineer um, and then moves to Guinea where um, Secretura's um, party has just basically become the party of national liberation. Um, she joins the independence struggle there. Um, and through that kind of becomes radicalized and becomes kind of drawn into the politics of national liberation. There she meets uh, activists from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which mm-hmm. is still, then still the Belgian Congo, um, where she then proceeds to lead the women's movement. So kind of her role in that is kind of one of the central roles of the liberation struggle there because she basically was responsible for bringing a mass of women into the, into the national liberation struggle yeah. who, without whom it wouldn't have been possible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's I think that's kind of, you know, these kind of, I think she points very much to an untold story of um, national liberation because oftentimes it's criticized as, which I think it was really, uh, a masculinist kind of discourse. And the way it was institutionalized after independence was definitely that. Was definitely that. Mm. So there was kind of an erasure. Of, but it's kind of also a matter of um, recovering these contributions mm. and thinking about, oh, okay, what did someone like André Blois contribute? Mm-hmm. How important was the, were the kind of women's movements to, yeah. you know, kind of building the base of, 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 uh, of an independence party? Yeah. Or, you know, these kind of questions. A feminist national liberation rather than the kind of, yeah, exactly, the... the uh, the well definitely on the other side of that the something like the nation of islam or you know like black nationalists yeah, yeah, yeah. incredibly yeah, macho and, 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 figures yeah of course and, and I that's think, what we commonly associate with 
black nationalism now because of the defeat of people like Andre Bredor. Yeah, and and you know the, the, the erasure, erasure of those because I think her situation is unfortunate because she's aligned. Um, she works closely with Patrice Lumumba. Um, mm. in his kind of uh, yeah, she works very very closely with him. Um, but obviously he is assassinated. Then we have the coup by uh, Mobutu, mm-hmm. um, a military regime, very much based on like an Africanist kind of right. essentialist kind of politics. Um, and she's expelled from the country and can never return. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, with that over the years, we also see a decline of, you know, an erasure by that regime of the kind of rag- radical feminist anti-colonial movements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think you see it a lot too with kind of, you know, with the leaders that were assassinated in the Portuguese colonies who were, you know, whose politics did have at least, even the men did have at least a feminist bent to it, mm-hmm. where there was a concern for that. Um, but yeah. they were all assassinated and the leaders that oftentimes took over afterwards didn't uh, push that forward right. in any way. As a matter of fact, more so um, kind of tried to sideline it. Right. I, I, I wanted to talk a tiny bit about um, Jewishness. I try not to bring it into every <laughs> interview that <laughs> I do. But... Um, you know, there are such obvious parallels between the kind of Afro-pessimist um, sort of ideas and a kind of, I, I guess I would call it a Judeo-pessimism, which sees anti-Semitism as a perpetual condition and Jews as defined by their oppression and as fundamentally different from other people as a result of that. I'm thinking actually of um, a book by Barry Weiss, American mm-hmm. kind of political a commentator and columnist she used to work for the New York Times mm-hmm. she sort of self-immolated she now does a uh, substack. she wrote a book called How to Fight Anti-Semitism a couple of years ago and um, Judith Butler reviewed it um, for Jewish Currents and, and she writes of um, Weiss's book she says it is not only the lack of a broader political approach but also a lack of historical analysis that afflicts this impassioned book now we're talking about historicity mm-hmm. exactly in the same way Weiss often uses epidemiological language to understand anti-Semitism. It is a, quote, thought virus, an intellectual disease, an ancient malady, a cancer. As such, anti-Semitism seems to exist outside history, recurring in all possible spaces and times. In other words, anti-Semitism is a latent feature not only of our presumably US society, but of all societies. It just strikes me that, you know, this idea of the perennial, incurable, spontaneous, historically non-contingent yeah. anti-Semitism informs this then need for a state of Israel because you're like, well, we're always going to be oppressed. How do we protect ourselves from oppression by having a nation state? I mean, we can also talk about that reactionary nationalism, mm-hmm. although obviously there were also some people that I suppose thought of themselves as a part of a project of national liberation as well. We know that sort of socialist Zionism was, yeah. was a thing. Um, I, it's no longer really a thing. Um, but yeah, it's obviously similar to a lot of the um, what we see in post-colonial states where people who were uh, opposing the kind of flag-waving imperial oppressors then become the exact people that they claim to oppose. There's also something similar in maybe the understanding of... Um, slavery and Mm -hmm. uh, particularly plantation slavery and the Holocaust as these historically exceptional events which exist outside of time, discontinuous with histories um, of colonization or um, oppression before or after. You know, we have the erasure of the Herero genocide in Namibia, which Uh, is obviously a a precursor in Imperial Germany to some of the tactics used in the Holocaust. And obviously of uh, the the, the slavery that preceded and proceeded plantation slavery. You talk about wage slavery, debt peonage, share cropping, forced penal labor. 
There's a lot of things that I've just said there, but yeah. do you see those same parallels between Judeo-pessimism or whatever we call it? Maybe it's just Zionism um, and, you know, the the, the Afro-pessimism that has informed failed projects of national liberation in Africa and the, the mid-20th century. Yeah, so um, kind of the, the structure between like the new kind of Afro-pessimism and what you call Judeo-pessimism, I definitely see structures there. And, uh, or like similarities in the structures of the argument as it being, yeah, because it is trying to specifically not historicize it. You know, that's why also I advocate for a method of historical materialism as a useful method. Mm. <laughs> it's because, you know, we can actually yeah. see how different forms of racialization work and right. how those relate to kind of these devastating yeah. and ev- it's events. Important. Like, and it's, and it's important to understand where they, right, you mentioned like the German state and um, the Her- Herrera Nama um, genocide in in what is now Namibia hmm. and you know the historical erasure of those of trying to see the holocaust without any kind of link to anything else allows the german state paradoxically to cover up its own role in or to kind of detract from its own role in in the holocaust itself you know hmm. it's kind of saying this is a primordial kind of thing that has always existed or whatever i don't know if i'm just kind of thinking this through but it's, you know that's why you get that fanatical kind of Pro-Israel, yeah. pro-Israeli kind of sentiment in Germany. Yeah. It's, and, you know, that's the way anti-Semitism is talked about mm-hmm. oftentimes there, mm-hmm. not historically. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, too, in Germany, um, not by Jewish voices. Yeah, yeah. It's really <laughs> or, uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah and the, 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 the nation state is the solution to the problem of national socialism, of Nazism. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah like... but I think it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's the difficulties of thinking through um, kind of that because I think that's why it's so important to have a nuanced perspective of national liberation because yeah. it's very easy to frame the project of Zionism as a project of national liberation. And there's some uh, people that genuinely, they believed it was. As in, some people oh, were yeah, maybe course, more cynically that, yeah. wanting to, you know, uh, have a kind of ethno-supreme state and didn't give a shit about the Palestinians or whatever. But some people genuinely did think that they were liberating Jews as a nation. I mean, it yeah, just, no, they just didn't. No, for sure. And I think it's also just, um, I think again, historicizing it makes us have to also think about um, the long kind of history of Zionist thought too. Mm. Just being seriously and engaging with it as an intellectual kind of history um, yeah. with its nuances and different articulations. We just have to try and understand it too. But I think oh, this kind of unhistoricized kind of view of anti-Semitism mm. is very much like, yeah, I think it's, it tries to prohibit. It's almost like a, a political move to try and prohibit a full understanding of the dynamics at play mm. because they are political useful for some actors. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So yeah. I think with, with the Afro-pessimism, I think it's specifically the detaching of, you know, yeah, this, it's, this, it's, you know, so the way you're saying the structurally similar is this kind of elevation of, the event of the transatlantic slave trade mm-hmm. is this all-encompassing event, which it, you know, it, it is for the modern world. But then it kind of becomes this thing that isn't historicized. It's not about the history of it. It's not about the particular dynamics of it. It's not about how it relates, for example, uh, to a capitalist world system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It becomes not about that because if you historicize it, you have to kind of see what what were the dynamics here? How did it relate to this system? Yeah. But if you kind of make it this thing that exists outside of that, it's an abstract kind of, oftentimes, you know, with the, I don't know if it's the same um, in the Judeo-pessimism you're talking about, but oftentimes there's, the language is libidinal, or it's kind of about the libidinal economy. So it's about mm-hmm. like, kind of a more like psychoanalytic mm. kind of language, but it becomes more about 
like people white people's obsession with destroying black right. black lives rather right. than like an actual yeah. system and that 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 people forget that that africans weren't enslaved because white people just hated black people but that they used their racial they they racialized them as inferior in order to co-opt them into an economic system that they could then in which they could exploit them as human resources. Right. And then, you know, but then there's nuances within that too, because it's, you know, that's why um, I talk a little bit about this in the book. It's kind of, you know, the history of the term racial capitalism, for example, where, you know, we don't only say like, oh, capitalism invented these racial categories. That's why I find Cedric Robinson's work sometimes quite useful. Mm -hmm. It's saying that, oh yeah, sometimes it takes pre-existing hierarchies and makes them meaningful. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, you know there might yeah. be something, you know, there might be that. someone who's kind of articulated a form of race or what he calls, I guess, racialism before. And then kind of when it, capitalism makes these things economically meaningful and, exas- and useful for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, then we get the products of that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to try and understand how racialization happens as a process. Right. And I think that's kind of what both these discourses we're talking about here yeah uh fundamentally obscure yeah i think there's also something here which we're not talking about which is kind of liberal identity politics and the Mm. the the way in which um these discourses are encouraged by a liberal identity politics that encourages the individual to see themselves primarily as a subject and as a Mm. victim and that's how you accrue political capital and you accrue the right to speak on whatever yeah. insert subject here and that therefore individuals and groups have to present themselves as 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 competitors in an oppression olympics in order to um prove their worthiness in in a in in a political discourse or in a political um forum and that that forces a kind of self-centering of one's own group it forces you know th- why is it necessarily the case that let's say um in in my case as a jewish person um representative groups or nominally representative mm-hmm. groups such as the board of deputies should see it as their primary mission to advocate for the interests of Jewish people specifically and yeah. solely it's because we've got an economy of um kind of racial of, of racial sort of oppression a sort of um a, a commodification of racial oppression yeah. such that um groups have to assert that no their oppression is the worst and in fact they are the most oppressed it's the same with you know black racial influences on instagram yeah, and yeah. That, that they have to center their their own oppression and not just their own oppression of their group but their oppression which is probably given that they're quite privileged the oppression of the microaggression yeah. the oppression of the yeah. of the um of comparatively minor things compared to i don't know people doing forced labor in in other parts of the united states yeah yeah and i think it's kind of i mean one of the reasons um i write the book is because I do think that's related to the decline of third world or the decline of thinking of oneself in relation to all these other struggles, right? You think of racism as a thing that happens to you, but that might also happen to another group and that you might similarly be racialized. You might be racialized in different ways, but you're both racialized and you kind of share this project uh, that you are fighting, you know, uh, kind of an anti-racism and anti-imperialism that are quite grounded. Mm. Um, And I think with the loss of that, you get these kind of, you get these things of, oh, now it's concerned for, this group, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the solidarity movements were, were quite strong in, in some parts of the 20th century. Right. Yeah, I think it definitely has something to do with the creation of particular neolib- of the neoliberal subject or like yeah. kind of that where it becomes more about me, maybe my group limited, but about me. And I think that's also kind of what I tried to pinpoint a little bit with some of the critiques of decolonial studies and Afro-pessimism. Mm-hmm. It's because it's kind of like when you look at the argumentative structure, it kind of just reinforces their position it's not necessarily, I'm, I'm not going to be like, oh, this is what you're trying to do. 
but it's just I want to look at it structurally and see what is this doing? You know, what is it doing? Mm. And oftentimes, you know, if a discourse says we can't do anything politically other than write philosophical re reflections on it and everything it's else is useless, that means you are doing the right thing by sitting and writing philosophical reflections about how hard it is to be black or whatever. Yeah. And nothing else is required. Mm. So I think these kind of things, of, um, they often have just the implication of bolstering people's positions within, within kind of a, a broader neoliberal institutional structure. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but I think, I, I mean, it, it is in, intensely frustrating. I, I think particularly I, my own frustrations have been felt in the past week or so mm -hmm. with, with what's happening in Gaza and what happened in Israel mm -hmm. um, and how the discourse around that, which might have been a discourse of a settler colony and its imperial supporters like facing challenge from a group which yes has committed these atrocities but is also drawn from a population that is has been living under a blockade under a, un, un, under occupation and in what many human rights organizations have described as apartheid mm. we're not talking about it in that way we're talking about terrorists killing jews yeah <laughs> you know and sometimes i think also like uh, i mean just going back to that it's kind of thinking about it as i mean oftentimes it's also framed as if it's like a a, a war between between already states when it's yeah, a, the when it's something you haven't recognized as a state yeah very yeah i i haven't really yeah but i think there is kind of um I guess, you know, also what I, what I try to think, you know, in, in, for example, pinpoint, to pinpoint a specific issue with something like Afro-Pessimism as a political discourse, one of the founders, Frank Wilderson, one of his big things is that he says Palestinians are racist and anti-black or whatever. Um, it, and, and therefore, we don't have any solidarity. Right. Black people don't have any solidarity because black people are the most oppressed people in the world and even Palestinian ha Palestinians hate black people. Uh -huh. And it kind of comes out of this strange anecdote that he tells about a co-worker well, we don't really know what happened and it kind of just theorizes it out of nowhere. And I think these kind of things become then popularized, the idea that there is no solidarity because these other populations or other people are also racist. And I think that's dangerous because then it's, you know, undermining, for example, if we have the Palestinian, the Palestinian struggle now, it would undermine black support for that, mm -hmm. which could be a huge kind of international base of influence, like the black diaspora, as like an inf influential group in a, you know, in a struggle that relies also on international opinion. Yeah. Um, and these are people with influence too. And it's yeah. like, so it's kind of undermining that possibility becomes very, very, it might seem abstract at times, but it come, becomes very dangerous at a time like this, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think. But so the often, materiality of it is also relevant because, you know, famously Nelson Mandela um, talked about how uh, the fight against apartheid would not be complete until Palestine was free. Mm -hmm. And that's perhaps out of uh, a kind of, historical materialism born from living in a situation which is comparable in many ways to mm -hmm. the situation that Palestinians had lived in. You know, yeah. whereas There's... Frank B. Wilson, the third, like, <laughs> was not living in, in a parallel. Which, yeah, uh, which was always strange because he was associated with the ANC in some capacity uh, in his oh, earlier really? life. Yeah, 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 well, yeah. there you go, yeah, he's um... shapeshifted. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and I think it's also just seeing like, you know, the broad, the, the support, really international support for, for the Palestinian struggle has has declined with the decline of the third world project, I think. Yeah. There was, you know, stronger support in, in amongst African states, for example, too, at, at a particular point in the 20th mm -hmm. century. And I feel like kind of that international support has waned a little yeah. bit. And I think it's kind of part of, part of that, the politics of national liberation, because thinking at, as a complete of and then failed project 
makes people or it makes it difficult to think about it as an ongoing project that needs continual support. Yeah, but it's not also that people have just lost hope, right? I, no. I think that they're also constrained by the new arrangements that they're in with with the states that they've chosen to align themselves with, you know, after national liberation failed. If you're aligned to the US, you're not about to be speaking out in support of Palestine right now if you yeah, want yeah. any of those loans coming but, through but I next think, year. I, I mean, the difficulty, I think, of spoken to some people about this already is kind of, you know, you have the bricks now, as mm -hmm. a supposed inheritor, or presenting themselves as an inheritor to the world project, but the um, support for the Palestinian struggle is relatively limited within that. Mm. Even even something, I mean, it has all its other complications and, and flaws. Why has BRICS proven like not the kind of successor that the Third World Project needed? I, I mean, it's just, um, you know, all the histories we've spoken about before, where socialist Easy. struggles in different countries were undermined um, with the rise of American hegemony. So it's, you know, if you're making, um, if you're making a third world block, that's also, you know, the point for some of the Bandung, for at least for people on the left, I think the hope was that the Bandung project would start as a radical nationalist project and then move to a socialist project. And, you know, there'd be socialist revolutions in all these different states. And then we could kind of make a globe, you know, it's a, a real idea of kind of a socialist internationalism. Right would be possible. That's what you would have been thinking if you were on, on the left, I guess, at that point in time. Mm. But then the, the way these countries turned out is not at all that. So mm. sometimes much the opposite. I mean, if we look at India, uh, Modi's India. Yeah. I mean, um, Lula's Brazil, but yeah. Yeah, that, that is maybe Lula's Brazil. But then for every Lula's Brazil, we have um, South Africa under Cyril Ramaphosa, former trade union activist, um, who also um, sanctioned, sanctioned the, the murder of um, striking mine workers in the Maracana uh, massacre. I think Cyril Ramaphosa is anything but a socialist leader. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it is the, the, you know, the BRICS making these regional blocks are useful for geopolitical kind of um, bargaining power mm -hmm. and to kind of, you know, decenter the influence of American hegemony or to at least shift the center of gravity. But in absence of like actual socialist revolutions in these places, in, in different countries, it becomes just a different project that doesn't necessarily or won't, I think, have the outcome um, of better living standards and et cetera, et cetera, for, for, for the majority of the population yeah. in those countries. Do you still see, I mean, obviously your book is written, the, the, the subtitle of your book is Reclaiming Revolutionary Black Politics. And from the way that you, you, you're, you're talking about it, I think it seems clear that you don't just mean that theoretically, um, that people should read the book and reclaim it in their minds by knowing about the history of Red Africa, but, 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 but practically, and that the, the movements and um, political projects should, should integrate this history in 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 order to inspire them to kind of uh to channel it once more but I, I i'm kind of interested in whether you still see the nation as the vehicle for that or whether there are other locuses yeah. of of struggle because you you end the book by talking about the nsars movement mm -hmm. which is not a project of national liberation no it's, not at all it's a project of um it's a liberatory project it's, a, it's an maybe an abolitionist project. I don't know whether it describes itself in those terms. It obviously is a um, movement that sprang up um, in 2020, at the same time as the George Floyd uprisings. And a little bit earlier, and like its first articulation. Okay, earlier, okay. But, uh, in, in Nigeria, in response to police brutality and a particular um, unit of the police force that was particularly brutal. And there is, there has been a little bit of 
correspondence, let's say, between those movements, which between the NSARS movement and other abolitionist movements, um, such as Black Lives Matter or Kill the Bill, let's say. And there was certainly a temporal coincidence of those phenomena. Mm -hmm. Is it the nation that's gonna gonna liberate us, or is it gonna be kind of more, um, let's say, issue based sort of struggles against, for example, policing worldwide, um, yeah. or against, um, you know, climate yeah. catastrophe and the and the and the the executives of that. I mean, policing is always a good example because I think policing, for example, like an abolitionist struggle, brings a lot of different people together and necessitates you to talk. Oh, you have to talk about colonial histories and you have to talk about imperialism. Just because of the tactics of policing, the history of those, the history of counterinsurgency, et cetera, et cetera, was all kind of, you know, has these colonial histories. So if we were talking about abolition in like, in the UK or the US, we have to talk anti-colonialism and we have to talk anti-imperialism too, because mm-hmm. these things are, are so fundamentally connected. Now, um, on the issue of the nation state, no, I don't think that that's necessarily the site of liberation. The problem is that it's still necessary in some ways. I don't know. I find um, the work of um, the scholar Rahman Idrissa quite interesting in that because there's a lot of things about the erosion, uh, eroding state capacity through kind of, you know, foreign intervention. And state capacity sometimes is required to deliver basic goods. Mm-hmm. And then if the state can't pol- deliver those like basic goods, then it kind of leads regions to kind of cut themselves off and lends itself to kind of... Um, almost capture by mm. different interest groups and you know which we mm-hmm. kind of we, you know we might have in the kind of problem with the um, islamic insurgencies in the north of uh, in the sahel for example which are not per se you know there's always complications about these things for example in mozambique where there, there was a similar situation but oftentimes these are just people who aren't or who might live in a majority muslim region but who aren't um the state can't reach them to deliver services so it's like radicalization is right there because poverty is right there um so there is this kind of that's one aspect of the state which makes it kind of still we can know we can't these are issues we can't like swerve and or like or we'd have to think very seriously about how not to make those issues on the other hand yes you're completely right in terms of like nsars it's like that is a project against that's kind of against police violence and against the the nigerian state's use of 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 violence Mm -hmm. with impunity yeah so it is kind of a project against the state, in mm-hmm. fact, these kind of projects. Mm-hmm. But then I think, you know, this is a, a huge question. That's the same thing I'm trying to think through a lot is what structures are possible? Because yeah. I think that's why I kind of mentioned both these movements, because it's, you know, they're talking to each other in some ways. And, you know, that's why I kind of also return a little bit to the 20th century, because there's more direct communication with these. And you kind of yeah. try to form them into like the formation of, the third world liberation front as like a a radical student group in the the West Coast of the United States that kind of takes on the struggles on the continent and then relates them to kind of anti-racist struggles in the United States. And there aren't that many institutions, functioning institutions that grew out of that moment. Um, But I think it's also a lack, I guess we have to think seriously about what those institutions would look like and what type of institutions they would be that reach beyond the nation state, but are perhaps able to do some of the things that a nation state would like that a state would need to do um while kind of existing also in opposition to the kind of state form right i mean it, the climate does seem to me like the one that's going to going to kind of cohere people if anything does because because of because of the fact that it's like maybe the first like major global phenomenon mm. since the period of you know decolonization mm-hmm. where 
huge numbers of people, um, particularly in the global south, yeah. are experiencing the same thing yeah. and, are, and, are, and, and are fighting exactly the same states and um, private interests um, yeah. in order to in order to do that and that that problem is only going to creep northward and, yeah. and, and 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 cover more and more sort of ground and like we already see sort of coalitions of indigenous um populations of of um yeah of like global south countries forming in the face in the face of this and in the face of the like abject disregard that the the, the kind of polluting states have for yeah i think it's it and, and definitely there is like the there's the potential for those collisions within the climate movement but they also once again brings to the fore like all the difficulties of it right it's oftentimes then the you know sometimes the climate discourse gets does get kind of hijacked by the same kind of voices who have been saying and then kind of the, elite capture yeah 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 basically <laughs> I think with the climate pro project, though, if done correctly, yes, I think it does have that potential because, um, I mean, we can't talk about the climate without talking about mining, for example, because we can't talk about green energy without mining. Um, so we have to talk about the politics of the Democratic Republic of Congo. That, this is a direct link. And if so, if you make that argument in that way, it's like these are fundamentally tied together and it brings difficulties with it because, you know, our green energies, for example, rely on mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But how do we negotiate that in a green energy transition, which requires us to think about the politics and history of the Democratic Republic of Congo? You know, those things I bring up, like the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, and how might that have affected it? Because also it was aided and abetted by Belgian uh, mining companies. It's a long history. Taking it back to the book a little bit, Amilcar Cabral is, um, was an agronomist, um, very much fought against kind of the uh, imposition of monocultures. Um, kind of fighting for biodiversity in a fundamentally mostly agrarian kind of state like Guinea-Bissau, mm. um, which, you know, fighting against monocultures there is a crucial ecological project. And, you know, that still needs to happen too. And I think the climate movement does have that potential, but it does need to really, really recognize the centrality of the global south in kind of shaping that movement. Yeah, And it should be able to be shaped by that because without thinking seriously about the implications in the histories of the, of the global south. Um, I don't think it, we can have any meaningful conversation about how to mitigate climate change because it's also, I mean, on the flip side, it's like if we have like restrictions on carbon emissions here and it's like, and all your secondhand cars are being exported to, I don't know, Kenya, where there's no, it, yeah, it doesn't really, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a coordinated framework, but a coordinated framework that recognizes how disproportionately countries in the global south have been affected. Yeah, so it's kind of about recognizing. I feel like the argument of Red Africa, if I were to summarize in in conclusion, is 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 kind of a, about reaching not just across kind of geographies and about you know these very powerful voices in the global north. In this case, Black Americans who have the ability to shape um, discourses and even policies to to, to sort of recognize that. Racism didn't begin and end with plantation slavery, and it didn't begin and end with police brutality towards black people in America. Um, but at the same time, reaching across history, yeah. <laughs> um, and that like we're 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 involved in this project of historical um, kind of excavation in order to be able to um, inform the kind of place that we're at now. That that that, that racism didn't just didn't just happen or anti-Semitism didn't just happen, that yeah. the situation in Israel and Palestine didn't just happen. Um, and these are not like um, historically unique or um, herm hermetically sealed somehow. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's kind of the broader point. Then, you know, methodologically, the point of the book is also to kind of center, center Africa in a 20th century history, 
partly too. Um, and just to kind of make that gesture just so we can do that too in, for example, our conversations about the climate or, you know, how race works today or, you know, just to have the consideration of being like, okay, let's actually do an analysis and center the African continent. And that's always why I say I've valued Walter Rodney's How Europe Event Underdeveloped Africa so much because it does that historiographic move. And it gives us one of the best works we've had available about critical political economy, I think. Yeah. And the workings of imperialism. Well, this is a great book and I recommend that everyone read it. It's it's 100 and something pages. So you'll get through it. You'll get quickly, through it. You'll quickly. get through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also that it like provokes, as we've discussed um, today, there's like so many avenues that you, what, rabbit warrens that you could go down yeah. um, from it. But um, And we could today, but I, ha- I it's my job to tell you that we cannot. Um, <laughs> but so thank you so much, Kevin O'Goth, for yeah, joining o- us. O- hopefully I'll explore some of these other thoughts uh, in writing soon. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. We, we, we await that. Perhaps for NavarraMedia.com. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having us, Rifka. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month head to navara.media forward slash support.